Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for tuning in. We have a very special guest um, for you today. We're really excited uh, to just expose you to some individuals in the pro-life movement in this country who are doing phenomenal life-saving work. And uh, and we're going to introduce that guest in just a little bit. She's been on the show before, but it's been over a year, and many of you have only been tuning into this podcast for the past maybe few months or maybe a year, and uh, maybe you didn't uh, catch our conversation back in January of 2020. Uh, and that's going to be our friend Melissa Odin, um, who is an abortion survivor who is the face of choice uh, and uh, there's other uh, terms I like to describe her and her abortion survivors networks friends because they're phenomenal individuals who are staring ageists in the face and saying tell me how my survival of reproductive health care was just was just women's rights and we're going to dive into a whole bunch of ideas about what's happening in the country um, and what their organization does to prick the collective conscience of the culture wake them up and force them to look into the faces of choice who have survived what we've been told is a just thing, a wonderful thing, health care, women's rights, and reproductive justice. The euphemisms of murderers, ageists, and pro-abortion advocates who have what I call born privilege. Uh, yes, so they're willing to deny the rights that they weren't denied in the womb when their mother chose life for them. And Melissa Odin is one of the most powerful voices in the world today and in the pro-life movement. So you're really going to enjoy our conversation. Thank you for tuning in. Before I introduce her to you, though, I want to play this brief clip that Melissa Odin helped put together. Um, it was actually attempted to be a Super Bowl uh, commercial, but for obvious reasons, um, those on the left who think that murdering human beings in a womb is reproductive justice did not allow them to show it. But it was aired at the March for Life in January of 2020. It's a powerful video, and it's called The Faces of Choice, The Forgotten Individual that have been left in the murderous wake of the pro-abortion movement, those who, thank God, survived the procedure that their mother had scheduled for them to die. So let's play this short video clip. I want you to see the power in individuals staring ages in the face and saying, I'm valuable and your worldview is disgusting and bigoted because you celebrate the procedure that I barely survived. So let's, let's play this short clip. Can you look me in the eye? Can you look me in the eye and tell me that I shouldn't exist? That I should be dead? That I deserve to die that day. Can you look me in the eye and tell me that my very survival was a mistake? A terrible toll on society? Can you look me in the eye and tell me that in my most vulnerable state, I was nothing more than a parasite? A collection of body parts. Subhuman? Worthless. In 1952, I survived multiple abortion attempts. DNC abortion. An instrument abortion. DNC abortion. Abortion. Heritage abortion. A vacuum aspiration. Abortion. An induced abortion. Saline infusion abortion that was meant to poison and scald me to death. I am the face of choice. I am that choice.
These are actual human beings who survived abortion procedures when they were still in their mother's wombs. These are the eyes, voices, and faces of choice. Choice is not merely a word. Choice is a person. Learn their stories. Choice is not merely a word, it is a person. And today we want to introduce to you our friend Melissa Odin, who is the face of choice, who is the bane of the pro-abortion movement. Melissa, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And, you know, I just, I love the nicknames you have for me. <laughs> no, I think, I think it's powerful because we talk about this all the time. Is why I love your organization and, your, and all your friends and folks over there. Because each person there is a walking contradiction of the ideology and euphemisms of choice. Um, I don't know about you, but after that video clip, I, I'm about to, like, go hit a sidewalk outside of an abortion clinic. I'm about to go do some sidewalk counseling. That gives me fired up every time. I got a tingle down my spine. Um, tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, it was, it's a labor of love. I, I'll be really honest. I had conversations with Lyric Gillette from the organization Faces of Choice for years. She would call me up and say, Melissa, nobody's ever done this before to show victims of abortion, give you a voice, essentially call out the abortion industry. And over the years I would say, oh man, that's a great idea, but we're up against a giant. How are we ever? And suddenly in 2019, we were talking and just saying, if not us, then who? And if not now, then when? Right. And, you know, God makes a way. And Lyric did an incredible job of trying to make it happen. And wow. it should have been a Super Bowl ad. That's a long story. But what I love is that we still used it to give a name and a face and a voice to people who deserve to be heard. Yeah. Yeah, it's powerfully done. Uh, that, that choice is not a word, it's a person, and then the heartbeat just beating is just powerful. Just, and, 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 and that's the type of you know, stories and perspective that the American public doesn't get exposed to. You know, I mean, you got young people at public high schools, you got moms and dads who are sort of moderate Democrats, pro-choice, they're busy, they're supporting their family, they're not following the news, and something like that just cuts through sort of all of that, those assumptions and dialogue that they just take for granted on the issue of abortion. Um, and it was just so powerful. So, so for you guys listening to the show, check out Faces of Choice. Uh, check out Melissa Oden, the Abortion Survivors Network. Um, but before we get to that, many of you probably don't know who Melissa Oden is. Many of you are not in the pro-life movement. Um, and so I, I just, we're going to continue bringing people on this show who are doing phenomenal things and have been for far longer than I have uh, in the pro-life movement to change minds, change hearts, and save lives. So just briefly, we, we had did an awesome episode over a year ago, Melissa, where we, you really told your whole story. Um, and there's always more to tell. Um, but why don't you just share your story with us um, from, I guess, wherever you'd like to start um, to where God's brought you today? Yeah, as you're talking about, I've been doing this for a long time. That ages me pretty quickly, thanks. We'll just start there, I guess. <laughs> I feel significantly older than you, Seth. It just, it is what it is. But um, <laughs> uh, that that part ages me really quickly because as I share my story, my age becomes part of that. But it's important from a historical perspective. So abortion was right. legalized, you know, about 48 years ago. 
And I survived a failed saline infusion abortion uh, nearly 44 years ago. And I do truly believe, you know, the Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton decisions were my death sentence. Yeah. And they were the death sentence of the people that you saw on the screen in the video with me. Yeah. Policy matters and policy shapes culture. Amen. We know this. And That's a great line. the reality is I I truly believe that my life and my birth mother Ruth's lives could have been very different if she would have been given other choices. It was not empowering to be forced into a hospital to have an abortion against her will. Wow. Most people don't talk about that in society. We hear it's a choice, it's a right, it's reproductive health care. And people don't know that over 64% of women identify feeling pressured into their abortion. Wow. And that was Ruth's experience. She fits most statistics when it comes to abortion. 19, college student, unmarried, and forced by her mother to have an abortion. I think there are a lot of inconvenient stories when it comes to abortion in our society. Not just mine. Yeah, that's, that's an understatement. Yeah, and so the type of procedure that was forced upon my birth mother, Ruth, was the most common in the 1970s, the saline infusion abortion. They stopped performing it a long time ago. Uh, it's still just a very minute percentage completed today, but back then it was the most common, and unfortunately it resulted in many, many uh, dreaded complications Right. which is a live birth. Yeah, a live birth, exactly. <laughs> so I was poisoned and scalded to death in the womb over a five-day period. I have medical records that detail the abortion that I survived. It usually lasted three days, but in my circumstances, it lasted for two days longer because they just could not successfully induce Ruth's labor. And so on the fifth day of the abortion procedure, they finally induced her labor, believed that it would be a successful abortion, and that is the day that I had enough nerve to accidentally be born alive. <laughs> you fighter, I love that, gosh. <laughs> but we live in a culture, right, Seth, that says, you know what, failed abortions don't happen, late-term abortions don't really happen very often, and you know, born alive legislation isn't needed because that doesn't happen. Right. These babies aren't surviving abortions. You guys are just making this up to attack Roe versus right. Wade. That's right. Yep. <laughs> so you, you're now many things, many, one part of your story that a lot of people don't know um, is that you, you were actually able to meet and reconcile with your birth mother years later. Um, so, but maybe walk us through and walk our listeners through the progression. So you were adopted um, and then kind of, kind of go from there. Tell us your story from that point. Yeah, every story is different for abortion survivors. Some people are adopted, some are raised by their biological family. We survive at different trimesters, different procedures. In my circumstances, I was initially laid aside at the hospital uh, without medical care while they argued about whether it would happen for me. I was So Ralph Northam was in the room. (laughs) Yeah, who would have thought? Maybe that's how he got started in medicine. Uh, again, right, really inconvenient stories that exist yeah. 
lives like mine. But I was ultimately rushed off to the NICU by a nurse who was unwilling to just leave me there. I was provided medical care that sustained my life. And despite every poor prognosis that the doctors threw out, I survived and I thrived and I was placed for adoption. My, My adoptive parents kept my survival a secret, most do for lots of reasons. And I found out my story when I was 14. And it was devastating. You know, people from the other side sometimes want to say, oh, you know, abortion survivors are liars. Uh, You just wanted to be famous. You're making this up. Right. Don't sign me up. Because you don't don't fit into their boxes. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Don't. I've never wanted to be the woman who survived a failed abortion. Yeah. I've come to appreciate that this is what God called me to, that this is who created created me to be. But yeah, at the age of 14, to find out you survived a failed abortion, it was brutal. And stumbled did on that Did you know journey. you were adopted? I did. I, I can't even point to a time, Seth, that I didn't know that I was adopted. My mom and dad did a beautiful job of raising my older sister, who's also adopted, uh, raised us both to know that we were deeply loved. We weren't yeah. given up. We weren't given away. We weren't a mistake. We were none of those things. Right. And I think that was a hard part for me. I had to turn that corner, finding out I had survived a failed abortion. I was thinking, but you told me I was loved. Right, right. Wow. How, how could they have loved me, my biological parents, if they tried to end my life? Shivers. But that's what put me then on this journey to ultimately be who I am and where I am in the world today. I... My parents raised me with an incredible heart of mercy and love, and I am so thankful for that. And as hard as it was to grapple with the truth about my life, I knew that God spared my life and he was calling on me to forgive them. I didn't know their story, but I knew that they were victimized. Yeah. I was the intended victim. They were the secondary victims in that abortion. And so... First forgave them when I was a teenager, then started looking for them when I went away to college. And it took me about 10 years to find them. Wow. And my birth father passed away before we ever connected. But you are mm. so right. I have a relationship now with my biological mother. It took me wow. a really long time to, to get with her. When did you first meet your biological mother? It was about five years ago now. It's funny how I lose track of time now. Back then, right, as I spent 10 years searching for her, I could recount like every day, every minute, what it was like looking for her. And then when she was brought into my life, everything happens quickly. And and Ruth's story is powerful. She was forced. I didn't understand until we started communicating back in 2013 that she didn't even know, Seth, that I had survived. Wow. So she thought you were a successful abortion, essentially. That's what she was told. Wow. She was told it was it was successful. She didn't know if it was a little boy or a little girl. She was told that day, it's hideous. It's a monster. Don't look at it. Oh, my gosh. And she lived with incredible regret. You and I both know the pain and devastation that comes not just to children, but to women and men and to families after abortion. And I can tell you that Ruth absolutely lived with that. Wow. That's why we now fight. You, 
You found out later, Melissa, that when you were in college or after, that there was an interesting story behind the college you attended. Um, do you want to share that uh, with our listeners just as a sign of God's providence and hand on your life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I said at an event a couple weeks ago, you know, we talk about God's fingerprints being on our lives, but God's handprint is all. <laughs> all of I love that. Yeah, yeah. So not only did I give birth to our oldest daughter at the same hospital where my life was supposed to end, she'd be 13, but then I found out much later that the college that I attended for my undergraduate degree was the university where Ruth was a student when she was pregnant with me. We, we, were, we lived in almost the same dorms. They were still there when I attended. And I didn't know it, but my maternal grandmother who forced the abortion upon her and is the one who demanded that I be left to die that day at the hospital, she was teaching there at that university when I was attending it. And there is a scholarship at that university still in her honor. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So she she was a faculty or staff while you were a student there. Wow. That's wild. God's been preparing you for something big for a long time. <laughs> so that would be, in, in, in no small part, um, Abortion Survivors Network. Now, you've been being a voice for life before you launched Abortion Survivors Network. Um, but I guess tell us the lead up to that and then, and then tell us about Abortion Survivors Network. I think we all can relate to what this is like. We take a step out in faith and we feel like God is calling us to do something and we think we're right. We're in his will at that point in time. We're doing what he's led us to do. But what we don't realize is that it's a gate, <laughs> right? It's not right. the final destination. He's like, totally. you're going to be here in yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually preparation for this whole other thing. Right. And so I, I gave up my career as a social worker. I left my anonymity, safe job. I'm a pretty private person, believe it or not. I gave all of that up to start sharing my story publicly and advocating for the unborn. And everywhere I went, people would start whispering, hey, I'm a survivor too. And it it freaked me out. Because we don't hear about it in our society. Uh, Anything that doesn't fit the predominant narrative of abortion is pushed so far under the rug that you've got to go looking for it. Wow. But we're changing that. Amen. So it was, it was initially one of those things where I thought, wow, there must just be like a few of us Mm -hmm. and you become a magnet for these stories and then the numbers kept growing. And so that's what the Abortion Survivors Network is all about. People have known us as kind of this connector for survivors, but what they don't understand is that we are serving abortion survivors and families. I watched the pro-life movement for almost a decade, Seth, watching it and thinking, uh, where do I fit in? And will anybody believe me? Who do I trust? And now survivors see, oh gosh, I'm not alone. These people get me. I can trust them. And I use my voice if I feel called to do that. They're going to give me the skills. That's what we do. We equip survivors. But we also heal them. Hmm. Most people don't, I think people expect us to be missing a limb, be severely burned, have right. disabilities, and yes, some survivors do, right. but we've connected with over 370 survivors, 
And most of us, Seth, do not have significant physical disabilities. Mm. What you don't see is wow. our internal That's struggle. Right. Yeah. So there's tons of trauma. And we know that research tells us that, that children mm. in the womb experience stress. You, you experience trauma and then you add on the trauma of surviving an abortion procedure that was yeah. Yeah. horrifically painful. Yeah. yeah. So we're being surf- attacked from the very beginning. Exactly. And so we are born with rejection, into rejection. A lot of survivors continue to face rejection throughout their life, whether it's in their biological family, sometimes their adoptive yeah. family, and our culture out there. That's right. Isn't it strange, too, because there's like a broad consensus in the culture, right, Melissa, like everyone agrees with this, that that early child abuse is is incredibly scarring and traumatic. And even if you don't remember it, per se, that it has an effect on your soul and who you are and how you interact with the world and your environment and your meaningful relationships. Like everyone understands that and agrees with that, even if it's from the infant stage. Right? Even if it's, it's child abuse from one or two years old. Oh, but if you're, if you're a victim of child abuse in the womb, um, then, then surely that's just totally fine, right? I, none of these things fit into the sort of the euphemisms and linguistics of choice, which is that, well, that procedure, that's just reproductive health care. So, so what, I think just what you're doing is so powerful because you and I know that it's very lonely, it can be, to be in the pro-life movement. Because even the Christians, our brothers and sisters in the church, um, have no idea what that battle's like. And so there, there's that aspect of which just being a, a member of the pro-life movement full-time it can be incredibly lonely and isolating. Well, what about if you survived the procedure that you're trying to end? I mean, that's a whole other layer and level of, of loneliness and of like, who do I connect with? Who gets this? And so I think what you're doing is just so powerful. So where, where has God brought Abortion Survivors Network now? We are growing. So in the month of February alone in this past year, we heard from eight new survivors and you no got to see some of them face to face in our first yeah. ever virtual retreat, which, you know, it was so powerful, Seth. They appreciated you and your message so much. Uh, but what we found through that was they realized how how much more healing we have to do. I always tell survivors, like, we want to go out and share our story. We want to change the world. We want to save lives. But the world out there attacks us. And we shouldn't have to be up against this. Right, right. It's the most insane thing in the world that we believe every victim in our world except survivors of abortion, by and large, right? Right. Exactly. If I, totally. if I walked up to somebody and said, you know what, my biological mother tried to kill me, they would go, oh, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Oh, totally. Yeah. And then you throw in the A word and suddenly people go, oh, well, you know. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad so, you're here, but, but, right, exactly. <laughs> right. And so it, it was a really powerful time for survivors to understand just how much healing we need to do in order to be prepared. However, somebody, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because when we go out there and share our stories, we don't get a lot of warm fuzzies. I'm going to be perfectly honest. Right. Yeah. And, and how painful too, right? I can't imagine like, Hey, I, I survived the procedure that you're advocating for and calling justice and a natural right. But that procedure was a, 
attempted to deprive me of my natural right to life, and here I am. I mean, how painful that must be to interact with a world that is so pro-abortion and off the rails that it now says, hashtag shout your abortion. You know, celebrate it, normalize it. Now, the culture's been normalizing abortion for decades, but there's been a new level of celebration and normalization that I've seen in the last three to four years of saying, it's not enough to just call it reproductive healthcare and women's right. We actually want you to shout it and celebrate it. And we've seen this from people like Busy Phillips um, and many others. Now, you have some interesting stories uh, to share with us. Uh, and, and I want you to tell your stories um, for this reason, because I want people to get fired up and uncomfortable sitting on the sidelines. But I also want them to be encouraged. Um, if, if someone who has survived an abortion and is, has endured sometimes the physical but always the emotional scarring of that and having to deal with that with their, during their life, my mother tried to murder me. If, if you and your friends and your phenomenal network of abortion survivors can, can heal, can step out in courage, because that takes courage, and then say, I'm going to stand and stare the ageists in this country in the face and say, tell me that my survival was a mistake. Because if reproductive health care is a good thing, then I guess what would follow is that a failure to procure said reproductive health care would be tragic. Well, that tragedy is a, is a born alive baby, is, is Melissa Odin right here. So tell us some of your stories where God has brought you because of your courage, because of your obedience, because of your commitment to heal and be a voice, and, and kind of some of the gnarly stories you have of staring these, and I, I, I use that word intentionally, ageists in the face and, say, and saying, T tell me that I should be dead. Uh, sh just t tell us whatever you want. Share some stories. Yeah, you. I actually said this to you in an email recently. Survivors kind of see you as one of our shields. Uh, and that's a beautiful thing. Uh, for people who don't understand that, when we talk about how hard it is for survivors to go out and fight, yes, many of us have a passion to fight. We know that we are called to. But taking that step forward is very hard when you're constantly attacked. And so we appreciate people like Seth and anybody else who's tuning in who take one for the team on a regular basis. You know, when you're fighting against yeah. abortion, you're calling it out for what it is, wow. you are being a shield to survivors. And, you know, Seth, you know this about me. I've been a shield for my population of survivors for a long time. And I feel like that's part of you know, why God called me to this. And he, he prepared me by giving me so many different experiences. And one of them is Busy Phillips for mm. better or worse. She was on a congressional hearing that I was in in 2019. There were six pro-abortion. And I say pro-abortion because that was not about choice. Yeah, of course not. And so there were six of them and two of us as pro-life witnesses, wow. Christina Bennett and I, and talk about walking into a firing squad. <laughs> and it was, it was everything you could imagine sitting in a room full of people who were saying, uh, yeah, that lady over there, we don't want her to have anything to say today. No input. Her story wow. is not relevant. Uh, what wow. happened to her is illegal. It's illegal. Wow. Don't they tell us it's not supposed to be illegal? Right. That's right. A little confusing. Uh, but the thing with Busy Phillips was super interesting because she is one of the shot your abortion crowd. And it's yeah. it's sad. You know, we share these stories. But in the grand scheme of things, her story is sad because she's being used by the abortion industry. 
yeah. to, to spew their rhetoric. And so she was sharing her story and was saying, you know, uh, I have the right to control my body. This was my choice. And even after I testified, then one of, it was Representative Louie Gohmert out of Texas had said, you know, Ms. Phyllis, I'm just going to ask you, when did somebody like Melissa Odin, when did her right to bodily autonomy begin? Come on. <laughs> right, you're talking about this. So when did yeah. her right begin? And she stammered and stuttered, couldn't get a word to come out of her mouth. And finally, he just wow. shut her down and said, you know what? You can't answer the question. We know what the answer is. We're moving on. Wow. Come on. Later that night, though, she went on Instagram. And even though she couldn't say anything in that hearing, she went on Instagram and said, you know, she went on a expletive tirade. You know, I, here are the things that, that upset me, blah, blah, blah. Children yeah. left the border. Children killed with guns. She went down on this long list and she said, but you know what doesn't make me sad? Babies left in a bucket of solution to be poisoned and scalded and left to die. Oh my gosh. That's me. Wow. Unreal. But she couldn't say it to my face. Seth. Of course. Yeah. Coward. Of course. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a level of cowardice and there's also just a level of brokenness. I mean, Dizzy Phillips is post-abortive. And so rather than dealing with the reality that she scheduled the death of an innocent human being, she's just going to resort to what I kind of call psychological self-talk. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. What I did was fine. It was just reproductive health care. And so, you know, the strategy of the left writ large, and you know this, is to stick their head fully in the sand and deny the existence of an external reality. Um, and in that congressional hearing, that was denying that you exist. You were the reality that had to be, uh, to be ignored and turned a blind eye to because you, know, you can't rationalize your pro-choice positions in the face of someone who survived that. Um, so all these Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Acts, okay, right? Uh, these Born Alive bills. Some of them have happened at the state level. Obviously, there was the federal one, uh, Ben Sass out of Nebraska in reaction to Ralph Northam in 2019 on a radio show was asked, uh, so Ralph, you got this uh, psycho of a, a house uh, or, um, representative in your state, total psycho, I'm forgetting her name right now, um, who, uh, who's, who wants to institute the Reproductive Health Act. It was New York's version in Virginia. And you remember the scene, if you guys listeners haven't, haven't seen this, go Google it, um, uh, Kathy Tran. Kathy Tran. Yeah. She, she is proposing the Reproductive Health Act in Virginia. And this judge, who is either a pro-life judge or he's just like someone with a functioning moral compass, says, uh, uh, Representative Tran, I, I just want you to tell me, um, at what point would your legislation allow abortion? Can you just tell me that? Um, and she's like, eh, 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 doesn't want to answer the question. And he goes, uh, so, so the woman is nine months pregnant. She's on her way to the hospital. Could she get an abortion? And she won't answer the question. And then he goes, uh, um, okay, she's dilating. She, this woman is dilating, ready to give birth. Could she procure an abortion at that point according to your bill? And Kathy Tran goes, you can see her face. She goes, uh, uh, yes, yes, my bill would allow that. And so people were like, what the heck? And then Ralph Northam goes on a radio show and, the, and he's asked, what would happen to a baby if it survives a botched abortion? and is born. And he goes, oh, let me tell you what would happen. We'd make the baby comfortable. We'd resuscitate the baby if that's what the mother wanted. And then the mother and the doctor, you know, they would have a conversation 
And that was the end of his, his answer. Uh, conversation about what? And what do you mean resuscitate the baby if the mother wants? So, the, of course, people were accusing him of fourth trimester abortions, and rightly so. Infanticide, he's a pediatrician, which is a whole other level of you're just a sick freak. Um, and so Ben Sass, so scandalized by this, um, and launches the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which was an improvement on the one under the Bush era, which was the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. And guys, I'm just giving you an overview so that Melissa doesn't have to go into all of it and she can just fire you up. But that bill, while it was passed, it did not pro prescribe legal penalties and criminal prosecution for abortionists or physicians um, who failed to care for the baby after it was um, born alive. And whereas Ben Sass has said, there's some criminal prosecutions. You're gonna, there's, you're gonna deal with this if you don't care for these babies after they're born alive. Of course, the Democratic Senate has voted down the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, is it four times now? Um, because they vetoed it every time, and so it hasn't, it hasn't overcome the 60 votes necessary. So, so tell us about your involvement in some of these um, attempts and, and, and why, why they're important at a larger sort of federal and legislative level. Yeah, and you did set the stage. I think most people have a lot of questions, and that's okay. I think we need to be willing to have a conversation to say, okay, I thought what President Bush did was something. Why? Help me understand why we still need to have this. And you're exactly right. That was a definitions-only bill. It provided no teeth, no consequence. And it wouldn't take people very long. This is part of what we put out on our social media, especially on Wednesdays. We cover the, the kind of painful parts of our history as abortion survivors. Mm -hmm. And that is that this has been happening for a really long time. And yeah. so even after Bush signed that definitions piece, we have seen that children survive failed abortions and still be left to die. There's horrific cases out of Florida in particular, uh, where even a baby was thrown on top of the roof of the abortion clinic in, while alive, okay? Oh like gosh. initially was born alive. They wanted to get rid of the body and the evidence. Baby was thrown on top of the clinic to try to get rid of the evidence. I missed that one, jeez Louise. Hermit Gosnell, right? Everybody knows Gosnell. And of course, people wanted to pretend like Gosnell was an outlier. No, you know what? What made Gosnell different is that he was caught and not because he was snipping the spinal cords of people like me, but because of something totally different, right? It was... Yeah. So born alive legislation is needed because this is still happening today. And I can tell you, Seth, I was sitting in a virtual hearing for... It was the state of South Dakota uh, here in 2021 already. Right. And they were having a conversation about born a born alive bill. I was testifying in support of it. And one of the lobbyists for a hospital was coming forward and saying, you know what, this, right, we're not supportive of this bill, the hospitals, right? This puts us in a tough position. And it ended up, they kind of had a similar line of thinking like what happened with Kathy Tran in Virginia. Suddenly one of the sponsors of the bill kind of came out and said, hey, I hear you saying that you don't perform abortions at your hospital, but talk to me about induction of labor. Right. Like, for people who don't know what that is, they can induce labor and leave a child to die, or they induce labor believing that the child simply will not survive a premature delivery. We see this happen a lot with children who have a poor, as they like to say, a poor prenatal diagnosis. Right. So there is some language that people need to pay attention to because 
people are getting smart about how they hide abortion and infanticide in today's world. So that is just my short little primer to say it's still happening today. And yes, children are still left to die today. It's just that people have gotten really good about trying to cover it up, which is why that legislation is needed. Catch them. Well, you, you, I mean, you know Jill Stanek, too, right? Jill Stanek's story was she was a nurse. It was at Christ Hospital in Illinois. Christ and Yeah, that's right. And, and discovered uh, infanticide, discovered babies who were born alive being left to die and taken to a comfort room where they could, you know, be comforted as they died because you were violating your Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. Uh, and so we've had stories of this for years. And the reaction of the Democrats in the Senate was, uh, well, we already have laws against infanticide. Right. So what's the point of this? Which I found, I found, I mean, obviously disgusting. It's just, it's just a political cudgel of an argument to silence us. But I found that particularly um, hilarious at the time, Melissa, because when, in 2019, right, when all this was happening at the federal level, when Ben Sass brought it up and they made that argument, we already, we already have laws against infanticide. What's the point of that? Well, Kamala Harris had just co-sponsored a bill um, that labeled lynchings a federal hate crime. And so I made the point at the time, and I still do now, I said, but don't we already have laws against murdering people? And, you don't, I mean, lynching, that's just a way to murder people. It's not, it's not like we need to label drownings a federal hate crime. Drowning is illegal because you kill someone. Lynching is illegal because you kill someone. You don't have to label it a federal hate crime in order to make it illegal. So, hey, Kamala Harris, we already have laws against murdering people. Um, and particularly if they're, you're doing it based off their skin color. So, so actually, don't, don't do that legislation, labeling lynching a federal hate crime. But they, they thought that that was very important, and they probably had certain philosophical reasons as to why. Ah, uh, yes, exactly. You know, we may already have laws against infanticide. That doesn't mean that people are respecting them. Um, and so we need to tell you, you're going to go to jail and be charged as a murderer. If you kill babies or allow them to die, which is killing, after they survive failed abortion attempts. Uh, and I think the Democratic Senate just vetoed this again at, at the beginning of 2021 or the end of 2020. Do you have any thoughts on that? Not, I'm not surprised by it. You right. know, but one of the things I was thinking about, I mean, not surprised, but disgusted, yep. right? Um, you know, one of the things I was thinking about the other day, Seth, that I think fits with conversations that you and I have a lot is, uh, you know, so many of the members of Congress try to pretend like this doesn't happen, uh, that there's no need for it. But there was this huge piece from the Dreaded Complication series by uh, Liz Jeffries, uh, yeah. and Edmonds was the co-author. That was submitted as congressional uh, testimony in 1981. Wow. 1981. Hmm. So did they not know their own history? <laughs> right, right, right. It's not subjective. This truth is not, it's not subjective. And uh, it's frustrating for somebody like me to go forth and have them act as if it is subjective. Right, yeah, that's exactly right, well said. I think one of the things that, that, that you know, angers you and I so much is because you know, we're sort of flying at a, a higher philosophical level 
than most of the country. And that's not to self-congratulate us. I'm just saying, like, when you're in the fight, you see the fight. If you're not in the fight, you don't see the fight. That's all that means. And, and so we understand the deeper um, assumptions and motivations of the Democratic Party and these ageists who are both pro-abortion and now pro-infanticide. Because do, do, do you and I really think that 48, was it, no, was it 47, 48 members, uh, Democratic senators, think that it's okay to chop off the heads or bury or murder or fail to feed children after they're born? No, they don't actually support that in real life. If that was their granddaughter who was born and there was problems and the doctor stepped away and didn't say, they, they would be saying, you need to help save my granddaughter who's just born. So here's the point. This is, why, this is actually why it gets even more sick is because they're actually opposed to killing infants, but they understand the dangers of people like you, Melissa, um, and Republican senators planting moral premises in the law to quote Robert P. George. And what he means by that is that if you can plant the premise in the law that babies who have just, just directly left the birth canal are full persons, which was the language used in the Bush legislation, but not just that, that if you don't care for them or if you murder them, you're gonna be charged as a murderer, then it becomes intellectually untenable to make the argument that, oh, but that same child like six inches away and like literally 45 seconds before it's born, yeah, that was just a blob of tissue um, and killing it wasn't infanticide, it was actually just reproductive health care. That argument becomes intellectually untenable to make. So then at that point, now we planted that moral premise in the law, it becomes much easier to, to roll back abortion and prevent it in the third trimester. And then the question to the American public and the abortion industry becomes, well, what about, what about one, one minute before the baby goes from second to third trimester? And now you're just having a conversation about when is it okay to kill babies. And of course, there's no point at which the child reaches some level of cognitive ascent that suddenly it's a person. So, I mean, this, this legislation is important, firstly, because it saves lives. Babies who are being born alive who are being left to die or murdered or thrown on rooftops or have their spinal cords cut by murderers. But also because it, it, what it does is it forces the American public to reconcile with reality, which is you know these are human beings and babies in the womb because you would not support killing them halfway out of the womb or right after they're born. So Democratic senators, what they're willing to do is condone infanticide in order to prevent those pesky pro-lifers from preventing abortions, from, presenting, from preventing infanticide in the womb, which is just a whole other level of nasty. Yeah, I often say, right, don't deny my existence in order to support your stance wow. on abortion. And that's exactly what it is. Uh, and that's part of that preparation and healing that so many survivors have to go through. Our world out there says that we don't exist. Why? Because it, it's inconvenient for them to have to face the reality that we don't wow. exist. Because yeah. then you've got to start walking that out, just as you spelled out. I mean, I've never had anybody, Seth, be able to point to me and go, you know what? Here's the point when your life began, Melissa. That's Was right, it exactly. Was it when I was rushed off to the NICU? Was it those like five minutes when I was laid aside at the hospital? Was it when I was, you know, accidentally born alive? I mean, nobody, nobody can point to that. That's right, exactly. Because what do pro-choicers tell us, Melissa? They say, don't impose your morality on me. And then we say, aren't, wait, I'm sorry, sorry. Uh, aren't you imposing your morality on unborn children who can't defend themselves? Oh, exactly, because they can't defend themselves and they can't speak up and say, I dissent, 
I dissent you murdering me. So it's very easy to be pro-choice when the, those whose choice you're taking away can't react, can't respond. Uh, but oops, oh, sometimes they, uh, they survive that procedure. Now go make your pro-choice bigoted ageist argument into the face of an abortion survivor. And, and it's, it's exactly what you said. Of course, they're not going to look at the survivors of choice and say, yeah, it was at this point that you weren't valuable. <laughs> so it's just powerful. Yeah. But it is interesting, right? I, I think I told you I had an interesting kind of conversation the other day. I had a couple of trolls who came out one who you know thought they were being funny and saying, hey, what are some of your favorite hobbies? Mine are throwing myself down the stairs and using a coat hanger. Okay. Jeez, the please. other person who was probably would be a bit more interesting intellectually to be challenged by had sent me some messages and said, you know what? You use some of our hashtags about abortion and and you're going to you're going to start throwing that out there and in including your lies right you're inserting your lies about abortion with our hashtags and then you don't even have enough oh how did she say that you don't have enough humanity to have a conversation with us <laughs> wow hmm. yeah exactly because all of these words are simply political cudgels to silence your opponents. And this is what, what people don't understand, right? And this is exactly what George Orwell predicted in his, you know, crazy novel 1984, right? The character Winston in 1984 reaches this point where he says, in the end, the party would declare that two and two made five and you would have to believe it. And he goes on to say um, that the, the, the logic of their worldview demanded it, that they would make that assertion in the end. Not merely the validity of experience, but the very existence of an external reality was tacitly denied by their philosophy. The heresy of heresies was common sense. And that's what people don't understand is happening today, is that these words, humanity, right? Oh, so, so I'm inhumane for being pro-life. You know, uh, bigots, uh, pr you know, you're, you're preventing women's rights and reproductive health care. These words don't mean anything. It's just as silly as saying two and two equals five. They're just words that are being used, the manipulation of language in order to achieve political goals. And this is what Joseph Goebbels predicted, the Nazi propagandist, who literally said that if you tell a lie big enough, you can actually get people to believe it. And here's how. Repeat it over and over and over and over and over <laughs> until the American public just gets um, propagandized into thinking in that way. And the power of what you do in the Abortion Survivors Network is that your very existence implodes, explodes, demolishes all of the linguistic assent to bigotry and the manipulation of language to fit political ends just by existing and staring them in the face and saying, tell me why I don't matter. T tell me why it was okay for my mother to murder me. So we're so grateful for you, Melissa, and everything that your, your organization is doing. Do you, do you see anything on the horizons in the pro-life movement? Do you see anything shifting and changing? Um, and if so, is it encouraging? Is it discouraging? And, and kind of what role does, uh, does Abortion Survivors Network play in that? I would say it's encouraging. It always is, right? We're a, we're a movement of hope. We just are uh, because we get to see good things happening every single day. But you and I both know that this administration has radically changed the work that all of us are doing very rapidly. Uh, and for me, that's I think that's one of the most difficult parts is uh, my survivors 
have lived in trauma and they are now living under an administration that further induces trauma mm, right. by how it continues to try to push the whole abortion agenda. And so survivors wake up every single day knowing that our president uh, wishes us dead and is, is continuing to push that agenda so more children will right. lose their lives. Uh, so we have our work cut out for us. But I love that in the midst of that, it doesn't change our calling to heal and give hope and to humanize the unborn. It just gives us a slightly different battle plan. Right. And so uh, I know that I probably won't be invited to testify before Congress anytime soon if I do. <laughs> yeah. It's probably going to be that six to two ratio again. Yeah, um, exactly. Which is okay. God's got that. But we're doing some really amazing things uh, from a cultural standpoint to insert ourselves and confront the lies of our culture. So people should be on the lookout for uh, a day of remembrance we're going to be unveiling soon for abortion survivors. Cool. Uh, we'll just say we're going to reclaim some dates and Perfect. we'll be actually having a memorial dedicated later this year, hopefully in D.C. for abortion survivors. That's right. You mentioned that. Wonderful. And uh, I'll have a book coming out, should be this fall, which will include about 10 other abortion survivors' stories, uh, breaking their silence for the first time. Yeah, that's amazing. So awesome. I love that. It, it just just one thing after another to force the American public to reconcile with what they actually believe and, and, uh, and welcome reality home as the long forgotten friend uh, that they kicked out of the country. And, uh, and that's really just what we're trying to do at the end of the day. Uh, well, Melissa, thank you so much. Do you have any parting comments or anything you would want to say at this moment to encourage our listeners? Yeah, I just want people to continue to follow you and listen to your podcast. Our survivors have just been so encouraged by you and emboldened by you. And as you shared, if survivors can heal and find their voice and find a way to use it in this world, then people who are tuning in can do the same thing. And we are in this together. We could not do what we do at the Abortion Survivors Network without you. Uh, and so it's just time to dig in, friends. Let's right. do it. Amen. Come on. Uh, Melissa, tell us where people can connect with you and follow you. Our website is abortionsurvivors.org. My personal website is melissaoden.com. You can find us on social media all over the place. And, you know, one of the most important things people can do to fight back against that rhetoric and the lies is share the stories and the data that we put out on a yeah. daily basis. Awesome. And then Faces of Choice, is that .com or .org? Uh, .org, I believe. Okay, awesome. So guys, go check out facesofchoice.org. Go check out Abortion Survivors. Go check out Melissa Odin's website. Follow them on social media. Share that Faces of Choice video that we played at the front of the show. Powerful. Leaves shivers down your spine and forces your pro-choice friends to offer a uh, argument in the face of faces who just told them that they were scheduled to die. Share that. Follow Melissa Odin on social media. Follow what they're doing. If you have the means, please support their organization. I kind of think of them as the philosophical subterfuge uh, against the abortion industry um, because, because they're so easy to get in front of people. Now, I mean, not on CNN, but I'm saying once they start speaking, you can't deny their existence. They're there. Um, and, and encouraging those voices, getting them to heal, and just, just loving on them into the battlefield. It's one of the most powerful things we can do um, because they're few and far between. Now, there's a lot more survivors than you guys think, um, but obviously most children do 
die. Most children are murdered in the, uh, a sched in the appointment that was scheduled for them. Uh, and, and we need these voices, and American public needs to, needs to have their conscience uh, pricked again. Um, and, and this is one way that we can do that, is these beautiful eternal souls and image bearers of God um, who, who are standing in the culture of death um, that they were scheduled to die in and declaring life. And so go, go support them if you have the financial means to do that. Follow Melissa Odin. And, uh, and we're going to do more together, I'm, I'm sure. But uh, go do that. Thank you, Melissa, for, for joining us today. We, we really appreciate your voice. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Well, thank you guys for, for tuning in. Go ahead and share that episode. Like I tell you, some of the ideas we talk about, they're really worth um, sharing with pro-choice friends in particular. So if you have any pro-life evangelicals for Biden friends, <laughs> which is kind of like fiscal conservatives for Karl Marx, uh, if you have any friends like that who voted for Joe Biden but they say they're pro-life, or your pro-choice friends and family members, um, you know, tell them to listen to this episode and, uh, and ask them what they think about abortion survivors and whether they had value. And if, if, if so, when did they have value um, and, and have those conversations with people in your life at this, at this moment where the culture of death is being increased tenfold and the proponents of death are on the battlefront. They are moving forward. They are moving their legislation, their ideas. Um, they're planting their moral premises uh, into the law and those premises have, have deep consequences because ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims and policies are filled with ideas and assumptions and the ideas of politicians who advance policy. Well, when those ideas say that not all humans are persons and some can be scheduled to die, uh, those are very bad ideas indeed, and they have a lot of consequences. Eternal souls like Melissa Odin, um, who, uh, who most of them will not survive the abortion attempt on their life. So um, go listen to this episode. Share it with friends in your life. Have conversations. If you want to support this show, go to patreon.com forward slash unaborted and check out our fun tiers there that give you sort of just perks and, and fun stuff as a reward for supporting the show. Um, go subscribe at YouTube if you want to watch this show. Many of you listen to it. If you like to watch the clips we, we play and you like to see our guests or my smiling face, then you can go subscribe at YouTube. Uh, hit the notifications bell so you don't miss an episode. And if you want to learn more about me or schedule me to speak somewhere, go to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to book me to speak, and to see my speaking schedule if you want to hear me speak live and local. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next week. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted.